Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. Brought up in an evangelical Protestant home, Father Dwight Longenecker attended the fundamentalist Bob Jones University and continued his education by studying theology at Oxford University before being ordained as an Anglican minister, serving as a curate, a school chaplain in Cambridge, and a country parson on the Isle of Wight. He shares how this long journey eventually brought him to the church. Father Longenecker was, as I mentioned earlier, raised in an evangelical Protestant home, attended Bob Jones University, but he now serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina. He's the author of several books, including Beheading Hydra and Mystery of the Magi. His newest book is his autobiography, There and Back Again, a somewhat religious odyssey. Father Longenecker, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. It, it's an uh, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you, sir. Uh, I've been following your work can, for. Can you can? Is it possible for you to give me a bit more volume? Uh, I believe so. Uh, I, I, I yeah. Uh, we'll continue talking. That's I'm bit, sure. That's a bit. That's a. That's a bit better. What's your, what was your question? Oh uh, no, I I just said it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you. I've been following your work for some time now. Hello. Do we still have him? Well, uh, while we're trying to get Father Dwight back on the line, I'd like to talk to you about his book, There and Back Again. And for those of you who are fans of J.R.R. Tolkien, and if you've heard me sub for Al on this program before, you, you'd know I'm, uh, I'm just a little bit of a Tolkien fan. And There and Back Again is the title of Bilbo Baggins' book. Uh, and and for, for him, it was The Journey of a Hobbit. In this case, it's a somewhat religious odyssey. And in this, Father Dwight Longenecker details his journey of having gone through evangelical Protestantism into his journey into the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And then from there, he found himself studying his way back into the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And by means of the pastoral decree, by means of the pastoral provision that was made available to Anglican clergy in 1980, Father Dwight Longenecker returned to the church. And more than that, now he is serving as a Catholic priest. Father, uh, are you back on? Yes, thank you. All right, so uh, I, I, I read through this book, and, and you're, you're a prolific author. I enjoy a lot of your theological works and your, and your observations. The, the, the style of this writing is, is significantly different from a lot of your other books, and you do start by saying that you started penning this and you found it to be tremendously uh, overly pious and boring, and I must say, it reads nothing like that. <laughs> Good. I succeeded then. <laughs> so uh, I have to ask you why there and back again and yes I got the Tolkien reference yeah um, well my story is that I grew up as an as a evangelical Christian in Pennsylvania and went to Bob Jones University in Greenville South Carolina after that I went to England for 25 years served as an Anglican priest and then came back to be ordained as a Catholic priest in Greenville and that in itself is kind of a one of God's great uh, jokes I think <laughs> that I went there and I came back again and so I've tried to, I've seen the humorous side of God's working in my life and tried to weave some of that into, into the story. So, Father, I have to ask, I read this entire book with some concern about your health and, and the fact that you've been suffering with anglophilia for a while. Now, do you find yourself sufficiently cured, or is that something you still suffer from? No, sufficiently cured. <laughs> I'm sorry, you, you write about it that way, and I found that really humorous. Uh, so, uh, 
for those of us listening, many of the listeners here probably haven't read the book yet. So you gave us this very quick overview of your story, uh, but but that was in terms of geological uh, geographical journey. Tell us about the faith aspect of that journey. About the what did you say? About your journey into the Catholic faith. You know, like you started off as evangelical Protestant, and so tell us a little bit more about the faith aspect of that journey. Well, um, it really began when I was at Bob Jones. I did some yard work on a Saturday morning for a, an old woman in the town, and she was a very sincere, very kindly, um, very genuine Catholic. She was the first sort of authentic Catholic that I met, and she was uh, befriended me, and um, that sort of led me to explore the, Angl- the Catholic expression of the Christian faith a bit more, and that first expression was through the Anglican Church. And I became an Anglican uh, while I was at Bob Jones, while I was a student, and that led into a call to the ministry mm-hmm. uh, within the Anglican Church in England. So off I went to England with this idea of being, in being an Anglican priest, and that happened. Uh, but that journey was already on a trajectory towards the Catholic Church because of this, the witness and the kindness of this Catholic woman in South Carolina. And um, step by step, the Lord brought me to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So, Father, while you were studying in seminary, you made the horrendous faux pas of writing to a couple of bishops, quote-unquote, asking for a job, and you therefore embarrassed Englishmen. And as you you say, quote-unquote, that's an unforgivable sin. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Once I got to the uh, seminary in England, I realized that you needed to have a bishop who was going to sponsor you for ordination, put you forward for ordination. And I'm coming from an evangelical background where I certainly didn't know what a hardly knew what a bishop was. I certainly didn't know the um, sort of politeness and protocols that were required in England, um, and that you just don't write write to some a bishop out of the blue and say, "Hello, would you like to sponsor me for ordination?" Um, he didn't. None of them knew me, so it was kind of like a, a social error mm-hmm. and a political error. Uh, but the Lord opened the door, and eventually, I did meet a bishop who was willing to put me forward. Right, it was uh, Bishop Peter Ball, as you mentioned. So, yes. So, uh, in in your journey, in your studies, even while you were moving towards ordination within the the, the Church of England, it, it was very clear. You you make that very clear that you were always drawn to the truths that found that were found in the Catholic Church. Although you were cautioned to, and and quite rightfully so, you stayed away from a lot of the Catholics. So, why was that? What happened? Well. People need to understand that within the Anglican Church, which is a Protestant church, uh, it's very possible to do things in a very Catholic way, just as it is within Lutheranism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible to, you know, wear vestments and have the Eucharist every Sunday, um, have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, and so forth. And so uh, I was being drawn more and more to that Catholic tradition within the Anglican Church. And eventually, um, I began to make my retreat at... Um, Catholic monasteries and mm-hmm. uh, go to, Mar- to various Marian shrines and began to pray the rosary while I was still in the Anglican Church. And then eventually, as the Church of England began to contemplate the ordination of women to the priesthood, this particular issue uh, forced me to look again at the authority question in the Church. You know, who makes such an important decision? Right, and it felt right. that I felt that it was not only above my pay grade, it was also above the Anglican Church's pay grade. Mm-hmm. And that brought me back to the authority question in the Catholic Church. Right, and that, that authority question became, like you, like you mentioned, p- uh, perhaps the tipping point 
was uh, with regard to women ordination. You talk about that in your book, especially when you were at Cambridge. Uh, you you encountered that as a as an object of contention. So tell us about that because I can only imagine for someone go. I I read about the whole situation. I know the history behind it, and I can appreciate it from a distance. But as someone going through it, there must have been a real emotional upheaval on your part. Uh, it was, uh, and I I was by um, upbringing and by nature con- con- uh, uh, conservative and therefore opposed to women's ordination, but I tried hard to listen to the other side and give them the benefit of the doubt. And they had some very good arguments for women's ordination. And this led me to the Protestant problem, which is what happens when two sides or two Christians disagree very sincerely about a very important issue, mm-hmm. and they both have good arguments. Um, who makes the call? The only The only thing you can do is say, well, I guess it really wasn't very important anyway, let's stay together, or yes, it is very important, we'll have to go our separate ways. Mm-hmm. And that led me back to, therefore, ask about the authority question of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, like I said, had a, they, it was above my pay grade, but it wasn't above the pay grade of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. because the Catholic Church has this authority, which is universal, both geographically and chron- chronologically. And what I mean by that is that the authority system is rooted in the last 2,000 years of Scripture and, the, and, and sacred tradition, right. but also uh, the authority question can uh, reach out to every corner of the globe. So <clears throat> while the Church of England was concerned about what's going on in England, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church could ask the question, well, how does this issue affect the Church in Africa, the Church in That's India, right. the Church in Asia, the Church in South America, the Church in North America? And had it had the global reach to be able to ask that question on a global uh, and on a chronological scale, right? And and you actually specifically mentioned that in your book that the universality of the authority of the church was not only a drawing factor; it was a a profound reality for you. So uh, I'd, I'd like to then zoom zoom into, or sorry, focus into that particular reality. Uh, you were drawn to the authority of the church, and but as you mentioned. Back in the Church of England, while you, there were a lot of things that drew you that were Catholic but were practiced within the Church of England, everyone was mildly, as you mentioned, Calvinist. Now, I, I suspect when you write that, you don't actually mean that everyone espoused a hard double predestination, but uh, most of the solas of the Reformation or the Protestant Revolt were held to be true. And th- this must have jarred your own sense of faith because you had to find a new sense of grounding in your belief in authority and how Scripture was to be interpreted. Yeah, all I can say is that uh, I had. I think all of uh, Protestant evangelical Christianity is uh, at least it's built on a Calvinistic foundation. Even if they don't hold to the hard and fast um, tenets of Calvinism as such, there's a kind of Calvinistic under underlay under un, un foundation of their theology. Mm-hmm. And all I can say is that when I began to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I began to say, "Well, this is what I've always believed." So if you take, for example, um, the Calvinistic belief of once saved, always saved, uh, then you become a Catholic and you say, well, no, actually, it's it's possible to commit a mortal sin and lose your salvation. Right. And I thought, well, I've always actually believed that. Even though I may not have stated it, I've always thought that that was common sense, that if you had the free will to accept the Lord, you could also have the free will to reject Him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was, that, it was that way time and again as I read the Catechism of the Catholic Church and began to really understand what Catholics truly believe rather than what I've been told they believe. Right, right. And, uh, I mean, I must confess, a lot of what you're sharing is exactly the sentiment that 
<coughs> that I experienced on my way back into the Catholic Church, which was very simply that this discovery of this absolute authority of the Petrine seat and the magisterium. I, I remember reading Deus Caritas Est after having studied the biblical and historical basis for the papacy. I was in anti-Catholic Assemblies of God Pentecostal. And it, it was that same sentiment, this realization that this person wrote with the same authority that Peter wrote his epistles, granted Deus Caritas Est is not in the canon scripture, but in my early understanding, I saw the authority of those words in a way that my pastors never had. And, and, and it really brought me to th- that fundamental encounter. We're going to continue this conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker. Please stay tuned. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Crestor and Crestor in the afternoon. And we're discussing Father Dwight Longenecker's newest book, There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. I'm talking to Father Dwight Longenecker. Raised in, evangelical, in an evangelical Protestant home, he attended Bob Jones University. He is now a pastor. He is the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Catholic Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And he is the author of this his latest book, There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. So, Father, I wanted to touch on so much in the first segment, and I have to admit, even in this segment, we're not going to do this this book its fullest justice. But I do want to say this. You write in a delightfully sobering manner. It's, it's, it's joyful, and yet it's profound. I love the way you talk about adolescence and the effect that has on childhood, and I particularly love how you highlighted the startling reality of the seventh-grade seventh girls and what happens to them. Um, I, I, I began with my early childhood in Pennsylvania, and that meant talking about school days. Um, and junior high was not a were not was not a particularly happy time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I mentioned that um, when you move into adolescence, you move into seventh grade, and some gritty realities like braces. Uh, I forget the other wording. Um, braces, uh, you know, body hair. Seventh grade girls and that dangerous stranger called sex. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I have the quote in front of me. Adolescence is a time when the bliss of childhood makes a crash landing on the battleground of reality. For the first time, the breezy innocence and freedom of childhood came face to face with all kinds of gritty and grotesque truths like seventh grade girls, rebellion, breaking voices, braces, body hair and that dangerous stranger called sex. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you, you've got you've got outstanding rhetoric, but the, the reason why I say this is you know joyfully sobering is because you're right. You're, you're putting to putting to words, I guess, essentially the human uh, the human experience of adolescence and the fact that you do cast away the carefree joys of childhood for the sake of embracing what would eventually become adult realities. And I don't know a single man on the planet who, going through seventh grade did not find himself terrified of gaggles of girls giggling and gossiping. What was the question there? <laughs> well, uh, I just wanted you to comment on that, but uh, I, I want to fast forward uh, into what you talked about in terms of uh, St. John Henry Newman, which whom I've come to see has a profound impact on your own life, right? So uh, you quote him by saying this, religion must have an infallible authority 
or it must fall into either the latitudinarian or the sectarian era. The latitudinarian sacrifices dogma for the sake of unity, and the sectarian sacrifices unity for the sake of dogma. And then you go on to talk about how the Anglican Church has all but embraced syncretism. It's completely latitudinarian. So, so tell us about that, and you've been watching the Anglican Church from a distance. You've seen it become more and more syncretistic. Yes, uh, that quote from Newman about the latitudinarian or the sectarian error is a bit of a mouthful, but what that means is a latitudinarian church is one that accepts everything, um, and basically as long as you stay on board, you can believe almost anything. Now, in the Anglican Church, that means um, stretching from the evangelical Calvinistic viewpoint right up to the Anglo-Catholic. But now, the, ch- the broad church has become so broad that they've embraced New Age theology, liberation theology, feminist theology, uh, the homosexualist agenda, the whole modernist thing. So if it becomes so broad that there's no definition at all, then it's just one big mush. Uh, at one point, I, de- I, I, I um, describe it as a smorgasbord in which vanilla right. pudding is the only, the only thing on the menu. That's right, that's right. You do describe it that way. And you're completely right. Uh, in the years since you've left the Anglican Church, uh, women ordination became widespread, but then it eventually became uh, a complete acceptance of the entire LGBTQ movement on, on a kind of general scope, uh, and, and more and more things being accepted in the name of inclusi- inclusivity. That's right. And I can remember when we were debating women's ordination in my Catholic, in my, sorry, in my parish, back in the um, late 1980s, early 1990s, I said to my people, mark my words, you're, you're discussing women's ordination now. I said, 20 years from now, you'll be debating um, same-sex marriage in church. And they mm-hmm. sort of said, no, 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 it's not the same issue at all. And I said, no, but they're connected, uh, right. because it's all connected with the same, the same uh, liberal modernist agenda. In fact, you encountered exactly that even after you came back into the Catholic Church. A certain publishing house approached you, asking you to write up a proposal for a book on uh, the married priesthood. And I I found your description of your proposal very healthy, very balanced. Uh, But instead, that's not what they were looking for. There was a certain agenda being pushed. Yeah, I was, was, as as a married priest, um, this publishing house in New York, uh, I believe they were um, literary agents. Um, they just they discovered I was a married priest. They were like, "Wow, married priest! You know, we need this guy to write a book for us." And they wanted wanted a book that was basically going to be a uh, propaganda tract in favor of um, married priests. Uh, and I don't that, that's not actually my my point or my agenda. I don't I don't mm-hmm. campaign for married priests at all. Right. Um, and in fact, once I had got in conversation with them, they said, "This is great, Father." They said because after married priests, they said, "Then we'll have women priests and gay priests." Right. And right. I was like. I can see where you're going with this, and of course, the book never got off the ground, which is a good thing. Right, right, and uh, and unfortunately, that that really is the the dominoes, the, the set of dominoes that uh, that people are waiting for the first one to fall, because what that pre- presents is a crack in the entire edifice, and then more and more agendas can be shoved through. And people should understand that the issue of married priests and the issue of women priests are not the same issue at all. Amen. Uh, married priest is a question of discipline in the church. It's a discipline in the church which the church can um, dispense or make exceptions for like they've done for people like me but the issue of women priests, John Paul II has been clear, uh, has to do with the very institution and the very foundation uh, of the sacramental system in the church. And so it's a doctrinal issue which the church cannot change. And 
continuing to talk about women's priests is completely, uh, from a Catholic point of view, is completely sort of blind, because Paul VI was the first pope to actually have commission a study on this back in the 1970s, mm-hmm. when, the Epis- when the Episcopalians ordained women. And then following Paul VI, John Paul II came out with his definitive statement. Benedict XVI, as Joseph Ratzinger um, defined that statement as mm-hmm. being of, of, of the to be held definitively by all Catholics, mm-hmm. and no longer to be discussed or analyzed. Pope Francis has reaffirmed that same decision. So now we've had four popes actually definitively teach that women cannot be ordained. So why are progressives in the Church continuing to push this? It, it's not a Catholic way to think to do at all. Right, completely. And going back to everything that you've said in your book on adherence to the authority that supersedes us, that while there are many things above our pay grade, it it's not above the pay grade of the authority of the magisterium of the church. The fact is, anyone who knocks on this door is knock, knocking on a closed door, a door that's closed and, frankly, is never going to be opened. Yes, that old saying, Rome has spoken, that settles it, is actually true. Mm-hmm. There are some things, and what does Chesterton say about having an open mind? He says you need to have an open mind so that eventually it can be closed on something. Right, right. In in other words, sometimes decisions are made and they're final, and that's it. Right, right, absolutely. And and because we have the adherence to the authority of the Chair of Peter and the Magisterium, we actually have a lot of assurance. Uh, Again, you know, just touching back on what I was sharing earlier, one of my great joys of becoming Catholic is I don't have to invent anything anymore. I don't have to be creative about doctrine, dogma, or, in, or scriptural interpretation. Rome has spoken. We yeah. have. Yeah, go ahead, sir. And I can encourage our listeners to also that in these uh, troubled days with lots of um, conflicting views and opinions coming up, one of the great liberties of becoming a Catholic is that you can say within or within the discussion, I don't really have an opinion about that. Because you don't have an opinion. You have the teaching of the Church. Right. And it's, and it's not your opinion, or it's not my opinion. So you, you talked very briefly in your book about upon returning into the Church, and you saw uh, different levels of liturgical experimentation. You, you didn't go into uh, the great weeds of it, but uh, I, I do want to ask about your experience, because having come into the Church at a time when there, there has been some level of liturgical experimentation here in the West, uh, actually globally, uh, what has been your experience thus far? In the Catholic Church? Yeah, in the Catholic Church. Well, in, in the book I make it clear a couple of places that after I became a Catholic, people said to me, now that you're a Catholic, do you like the Catholic Church? And I had to say no. <laughs> uh, if I if I was joining a church I liked, I'd still be an Anglican. I joined the Catholic Church not because I liked it, but because I was convinced it was true. Right, right. And um, the liturgical experience within the American Catholic Church, as well as the English Catholic Church, has been pretty dreary. Mm. And I think one of the things that I talk about in the last chapter of the book is, I ask, just before the last chapter, as I became a pastor in America, I thought to myself, what would a Catholic parish in America look like that would combine the strengths of the evangelical religion that I was brought up in, that is a strong uh, biblical teaching, a strong emphasis on personal conversion and personal conversion of life, combine that with the riches of the Anglican tradition, which mm-hmm. are great. The musical tradition, the architectural tradition, the liturgical tradition, um, and then combine that with the truth and the and the authority of the Catholic Church. And that's what I've tried to do in my parish. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a winning recipe, to tell you the truth. Of course, I would say that. Every priest thinks what he's done is the right <laughs> way. But, but um, we found that the, the congregation in the, in, the, in the parish and the school has doubled. 
um, and um, it's a flourishing parish, lots of young families, so I mm-hmm. think it is a winning combination. Right, because the truth is attractive. Orthodoxy draws the soul. There's this ardent desire for an objective truth, and when that's taken, when that's presented naturally as an appetite of the intellect, that the soul is drawn to it, and just as much as when the good is present, the soul is drawn to it. Yes, and I've tried to say in all my writings that um, you know the Protestant, the Protestants have a lot going for them. They have they have some great strengths, and if we can learn from them in the right way, not just trying to adapt their outward. The, the, in an outward way, but adapt the very the, the, the heart of what they have, which is strong, the, the, the heart of their strength, then our Catholic faith will be stronger. Yeah, I completely agree, Father. I want to encourage everyone, we're, we're uh, down to the end of the segment, I want to encourage everyone to pick up there and back again a somewhat religious odyssey by Father Dwight Longenecker. It's brilliantly written, it's succinct in its own way, but it's theologically profound and, and lends us a lot of fruit for thought. Father, any last, uh, any last words before we uh, let you go? Yeah, I just encourage people also to come to my blog, my website, DwightLongenecker.com. They can browse my other books, they can read my blog, I still blog almost every day, um, and they can be in touch. So it's always good to hear from people. All right, thank you, Father. It was a real joy speaking to you. God bless you. Okay, God bless. Thank you very much. So I've just been talking to Father Dwight Longenecker, and I want to encourage everyone to do do obtain a copy of There and Back Again, A Somewhat Religious Odyssey. If I were to uh, piggyback off of some of the words of Father Dwight Longenecker in this book, he, he specifically says this, I became an Anglican because I wanted to, but I became a Catholic because I needed to. And that perhaps is one of the greatest sentiments that you and I ought to have, especially Right now, in this time of anywhere from ambiguous misinformation to a time of potential doctrinal confusion, what we have with certitude is that Jesus Christ truly is Lord over his church. And there's a definitive authority to the magisterium that, as Father Dwight puts it, is not just present, it's also chronological. No sitting pope at any given moment possesses the authority to upheave any doctrine that has been passed by the church before because the church receives all this from Jesus Christ to his apostles and this is called the deposit of faith and this deposit of faith has been handed down to us unfailingly and faithfully by every single one of the popes and the bishops in communion with the Pope of Rome. All this is to say that papal infallibility as a charism very simply safeguards this truth. The Holy Spirit continues the propagation of this truth. So when we talk about the development of doctrine, it's a very careful exercise of the magisterium in reteaching what Jesus has already taught and applying it to our life in a very specific way throughout the generations, throughout all the needs of the culture at the time, which is exactly what's happening in the church right now. I want to encourage you to stay tuned as we round off the second hour. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon.